John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Fathers, we get into this teaching this morning as we consider a little bit of what you have in these next couple of chapters of the Gospel as John recorded it. As we ponder the person of Jesus on this night of betrayal, I pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes afresh to the reality of life in us and around us. I pray, Father, you will make clear that which truly matters above and beyond all other things. It's very easy, Lord, for us to get convoluted and confused and distracted and detoured in our lives. There's one great truth, and His name is Jesus. And we proclaim that name over all our lives, over this fellowship I declare that name, Father, in absolute authority over my life. That you are the king. That you are in control. That you are the authority and I am not. I concede, Father, and give over all rule and authority of my life to you. And Father, I pray if any of my brothers and sisters have been grappling with this, struggling with this, trying to hold on to some element of control or authority, God help us give it up. And preach truth to us now through your word, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a great comfort in teaching God's word, and that is that it is God's word. I have a great peace And it has just grown over the years. I'm not really worrying what I have to come up with or what I have to think about, but knowing that God is going to show us exactly what we need to hear. I needed to hear what I'm going to share with you this morning. Needed to hear it again. It's something that I think we need to come back to again and again and again as Jesus people. My family was bound for home. Cruising 70 miles an hour down I-5 in Southern California on a sunny day back in 1975, the glory days before it got reduced to 55 miles an hour. I was 11 years old, strapped in the back of our cool 1970 metallic brown Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme with the vinyl roof. I mean, what a great car. I had my first accident in that car. Not on this particular day, I was 11. But my Uncle Sam and his family, they were in the car behind us, hurling down the freeway. My dad was driving, my cousin Vicky and my brother Ron were in the back seat with me. Sister Golden was playing on the radio and all was right with the world until the wheel came off. It actually came off. The front left wheel came off. My dad had just had a a tire rotation done. The lug nuts were improperly fastened, were not fastened on strong enough and after driving down the freeway several miles, loosened up, popped off and the wheel itself came off and jammed up underneath the wheel well in the front left side of the car. It was the strangest feeling in the world. I still remember how it felt. It felt like the car went vertical, up and then down and then skidded. That's, it just, I don't know why, but that sticks in my mind as to what happened. My dad held the steering wheel so steady and true that that front left axle cut a groove straight down the center of the fast lane on I-5. 
It didn't vary to the right or to the left. No swerving at all. The police were amazed. It just went and stopped. We all got out of the car and caught a tow truck to the local service station. I remember gathering there as my uncle and his family gathered and we all were shaken but, but laughing until my, my cousin Jill, who wasn't even in the car, she was behind watching the whole thing take place. All of a sudden she just burst into tears. The reality of what had just happened finally caught up to her. Now, I don't know if I've told that story to you before. I may have several years ago, but it just reminds me of how much life is like that. Man, we are cruising down the highway to Sister Golden Hair. It's a good day. The sun is shining. All is right with the world until the wheels come off. Until it all falls apart. Until the unexpected happens. And in those moments, we finally recognize, we finally realize we have absolutely no control over our lives. We really don't. Oh, we may think we do, but we don't. Life gets beyond our control. Now, we live in what sociologists call a postmodern generation. Talk to Rachel. She just finished a class. Actually, just finished college. Congratulations. But we've been talking all semester about this class she's been taking and talking about postmodernism. What is that? It's just a definition for this generation that that feels that nothing is absolute. Everything is relative to the individual. Personal opinion reigns supreme. Social media gives the illusion that all views are equally valid. Guess what? They are not. What is my view? Yeah, but it may not be a valid view. Just because it's yours, just because you cling to it. The only real authority, according to the postmodernist, is mine in the moment. And that may change. (laughs) Nothing is settled. Everything is up for grabs. We've been loosening the lug nuts for years. Our culture has. The wheels are coming off right and left, and no one seems to understand why. As this culture we live in pursues this mentality of all views are valid. All views are acceptable. We had this happen in our junior high uh, study on Wednesday night. Some of you parents may be aware of this. And I'm not going to get on in, all into talking about what happened. But we had a student there who was giving an opposing opinion completely different to what Jake was teaching. An opinion that just said, I disagree with you. I just think that it's kind of like this. And it's a postmodern world that we live in. And it really struck me on Wednesday because this is not just college students who always have been a little wonky. (laughs) This is not just high school students starting to feel their own and coming into independence. This is junior hires who are hearing these things and accepting and believing in a world that is postmodern. Deconstructionism is another word for it. The the constructs of the previous generation no longer count for anything. It's all about taking it apart and expressing your own view. And your view in the moment is the right view for you. Even though it conflicts with everybody else. Can I just speak some truth to you this morning? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. The one with all authority in heaven and on earth is with us to the very end of the age. Guess what? He still has all authority. Jesus Christ still reigns supreme. He is still Lord in the heavens. He is still God of all things. He still has the right. That's kind of strange though. He said all authority has been given to me. Wasn't it his to begin with? What does he mean it's been given to him? Almost sounds as if he had to earn it. He didn't have to earn it. But he did earn it. Let me say that again. He didn't have to earn it, but he did earn it. He already had it, and yet he went about earning it again, revealing his authority in his life. He had all authority. And then he laid it aside. 
only to take it back up again in His resurrection. And now, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 21, He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things, let me underscore that, all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You may recall, you Bible students, what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, describing this very thing again. He says, Jesus Christ, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the truth. He is absolute. His authority is absolute. And you know what's interesting? True authority doesn't need to be seen as such. True authority doesn't need a title. True authority doesn't need to stand up and be noted for who he or she is. True authority knows he's in charge. And doesn't sweat it. Doesn't worry about it. There are those who fight to look like they're in control, driving themselves and others. Those who lord it over to prove their status. Sometimes just we try to prove it to ourselves. You know, if I can boss other people around, then I can come out feeling like I've got more power, more control, more authority. And yet by the example of Jesus, those who empty themselves, who humble themselves, who take on obedience to godly authority, they are like Jesus. They are following after the one who is true authority. Jesus had that. He he never had to go around. In fact, he didn't need the title rabbi. He wasn't wearing a little sign that said, I am the Son of God. In fact, he called himself Son of Man more than anything else. Because he knew that he had true authority. He would say the same to you, to me. Know that we are under true authority. His way of putting it is like this, Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. Which immediately reminds us we're a little flock. And He says, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God will give you all the authority that He deems necessary for you, for me to have. Under the true authority who is Jesus Christ. I want to mull over this today. And I may go about this a little bit differently. It may come off a little differently. I don't know, it may not from other studies that we typically have. But the authority of Christ... I want to think it through and kind of get a broader overview than the typical verse-by-verse that we do. And the broader overview I'm looking at here, and I've been thinking about literally for months now, is the authority of Jesus as expressed in the context of His trials. In other words, that least likely period of His life for Him to look like He has any authority at all. And yet it is so evident in John's Gospel. There are six trials of Jesus that the four Gospels tell us about, beginning at the house of Annas and running all the way ultimately until Jesus ends up back at Pilate's place. But John only shares two of these trials. We talked about this midweek. Two trials. One unlawful religious trial by Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, himself previously the high priest, and the unjust political trial by Pontius Pilate. Those are the only two trials John covers at all. Why? Why only these two? I said this several times Wednesday night. John has an agenda. John writes with a purpose. The Spirit through John has a, an agenda to testify to the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. That's the point of the Gospel. That Jesus is God. And that in Him you may have life. And life everlasting. 
That's the point of the gospel. And so John pulls out two of the six trials to make this point. One religious, one political. But going into these trials, John uses a significant little word. It's only used four times in his gospel. And the word is deo in the Greek. Deo, which is translated bound. Bound. Here are the four times he uses it. The first time, we see it used of a previously dead Lazarus. As the Bible tells us in John 11.44, the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's the first word of the first use of the word deo in John's Gospel. The last time we see this word used, it describes the tender care of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus over the body of Jesus. John 19.40, they took the body of Jesus and bound it, deo, in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So the first time Lazarus, the last time Jesus being wrapped for burial, the second and third times are used right here, and they're the same context. They speak of Jesus arrested and bound. Manacled, if you will. John 18, verse 12, the Roman cohort and the commander of, and the officials of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. We see down in verse 24. Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. But Jesus wasn't bound by the Roman officers. He wasn't bound by the Jewish leaders. Jesus was bound by allegiance to the Father. Jesus was bound by his love for lost humanity. Jesus was bound and determined to go to Calvary. And what you've got to see here is amazing who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was bound, but listen, Jesus was in charge every step of the way. And we see this more in John's gospel than in any other gospel. Please understand, he was not just a willing, passive actor in this drama. He wasn't just okay with being bound. He wasn't just allowing it. He wasn't just willing to go along with it. Listen, he was the active, decisive director of everything that was taking place on this night. He was in charge. What we see in John 18 and 19 is the absolute authority of Christ making his way to the cross. He's going to get there one way or the other. He makes sure it happens. John in his gospel has shown us now seven signs. You know, seven miracles that Jesus performed. All signs revealing his deity. He's given us seven I am statements. All again, connecting Jesus to the great I am. Yahweh, the Father. I am that I am. He ends his gospel... John 18 and 19 with seven examples of authority. This actually hit me last night. I had done all the study. I had gone all the way through it. And I went back and looked at it and went, wait, there are seven here. I didn't even set it up to have seven points this morning. Seven examples of Christ's authority when you would least expect it. I mean, if anybody's life is out of control, it's when you're bound and taken off to prison, right? I mean, you've lost all your rights. And yet Jesus is in complete Control. Example number one, verse three of chapter 18. Look at it again. Judas then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. Psalm 22.16, that great psalm of the cross, says, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now you Bible students, again, Wednesday night we talked about this. Judas shows up with a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort is 600 men. A battalion. 
of a legion of Roman soldiers is 600 men. This was not just a little crew. These were 600 soldiers armed to the teeth, ready to take down this massive threat to the Roman Empire. And there's Jesus in the garden. The King James translation, the word in the Greek is spira, and spira means military battalion, 600 men of a Roman cohort. The King James translation says a band. A band. That Judah shows up with the Roman band. What is it, a parade? This is not a band. I mean, you two and Coldplay would have nothing on this group of men. One Direction wouldn't stand a chance. This is a huge company. The only comparable band might be a 600-member marching band, highly trained and equipped with swords and shields, rather than tubas and trumpets. This was serious business. But notice what Jesus does in verse 4. Here comes this massive army, if you will, of the Romans, the Jewish leaders. They're all there. Torches. They've got their weapons drawn. They're good to go. And what does Jesus do in verse 4? Jesus went forth. He did not shrink back. He didn't hide behind the tree. He didn't exit the garden post haste. He went forth. He goes right up to them. He's not evasive, he's not elusive, he's not slippery, he's not ambiguous. He takes it straight to them. He's confident. Whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. I am. And at the statement of that word, and yes it is, the ego eimi in the Greek. It is the comparable Yahweh in the Hebrew. When Jesus says, I am, verse 6 I love it. They drew back and fell to the ground. They didn't fall in by rank. They fell back in retreat. Now note just that moment, the power of that moment. And I believe it was prophesied. That moment. What do you mean? Psalm 27 verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. And now we've got this Roman cohort stumbling all over themselves. Falling apart at the mere statement of Jesus, I am. He goes forth. Let me just ask the question. I'll ask it a few times this morning. Who's in charge here? Is it Judas? Is it some of the officials of the temple guard? Is it the Romans? Jesus says, I am, and they all quickly go to the ground. That's what you do when you come face to face with I am. Jesus is in charge. Psalm 27, continuing verse 3, Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. And Jesus was. Absolute assurance, authority, confidence. He stands up, he goes forth, he states, I am. Now there's a little flurry of activity as Peter tries to take earlobes into his own hands. (laughs) Chopping off the right ear of the high priest's servant. Right ear, wrong move. (laughs) And so Jesus intervenes. Go down to verse 11. Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Put away your sword, Peter. Knock it off. Stop this. Put the sword into the sheath. We talked about this Wednesday. I just got to mention it to you. That the right sheath for this sword is the heart. That to handle this sword correctly... Because there are Christians who go about lopping off ears with the sword of the word. There are Christians who will go about and use the Bible to cause deafness in the non-believing world. The best sheath that we have for the sword is the heart. Keep the word in the heart. And when the word then is reproduced, it comes from a position of love. It comes from a place of truly caring about those with whom we share the word, rather than just caring about winning the argument. Sheath the sword of the word in the heart. Psalm 119.11 Your word I have treasured in my heart so that I may not sin against you. 
It will help us speak the truth of love if the truth is already embedded in our hearts. Well, from here we go down to the house of Annas. They have now taken Jesus, they bind Him, they take Him to Annas, and we begin the first unlawful trial that night. We've already seen the authority of Jesus, we now see it again, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about His disciples and His teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And when he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Who's in charge here? Who's running the meeting? I mean, Annas, the high priest, is the one who's supposed to be the boss, and Jesus just turns it right around and sends the questions back to the questioner. He gets struck for it, and then he questions the man who strikes him. He doesn't lose it. He doesn't fall to the ground whimpering. He says, why are you striking me? The truth is standing up. This former high priest, father-in-law again to the current high priest, most respected leader and authority in all of Israel, is shut down by the cool-headed, calm, confident Jesus. Because Jesus is in authority. This itinerant rabbi shuts down the high priest such that verse 24 so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest and I'm sure old Annas went on back to bed I'm getting nowhere he sent him bound again not bound by the manacles of man but bound by his own divine determination Jesus is not along for the ride gang he's driving the Oldsmobile he's got his hands on the wheel Now John skips beyond Caiaphas, the trial that would take place there, and goes directly to Pilate, where the Jews are looking for the death penalty. Skip down to verse 31 of chapter 18. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of which Jesus, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Let me ask you this question. By whose authority or on whose authority was the method of execution for Jesus decided? It was on the authority of Jesus. This is the way Jesus had determined he was going to die. This was the plan all along. It was by His own Word. Note that again in verse 32. To fulfill the Word of which Jesus spoke. His Word. He said He would die by crucifixion. By Roman crucifixion. Not by stoning. Not by being pushed off a cliff in Nazareth. Not by any myriad of other options of death. Jesus said, no, my death is going to be by Roman crucifixion. His decision, His authority... And what had he said? John 3.14 as, Mo- as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. John 12.32 Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth I will draw all men to Myself. And John says, by, But He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which He was to die. This was Jesus' call. And He was determined so determined that David wrote of this in Psalm 22.16, a thousand years before, they pierced my hands and my feet. So determined that Isaiah prophesied of it 700 years before, in Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. So determined... The Revelation 13.8 tells us he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Who chose the method of execution for Jesus? Jesus did. He's in charge. He is the authority. This wasn't Pilate's call. This was not the Jews' call. Jesus is calling the shots. Verse 33, chapter 18, continuing. 
Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Now who's asking the questions? Once again, he turns it around. He immediately has the questioner back on his heels. You could say Jesus just took the wheel from the pilot. <laughs> Verse 35. Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? See, and Pilate's now on the defensive rather than the offensive. Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And by the way, back to those who are in authority. When those who are trying to be in authority think they're in authority, are questioned, they waffle. Because it doesn't feel good to be questioned by the underlings. You know, when Jesus is questioned, he just asks you a question. He just brings it right back to you. Pilate is back on his heels. And Jesus answers him, verse 36, and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But, as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Now listen, before I go further. My kingdom is not of this world. When you know that, when you get it, little flock, that your father is giving you a kingdom, anything from a mocking or scornful remark to a hefty fine, to jail time, even to outright execution for the people of Jesus is no threat. Is no concern whatsoever. Because my Father's given me a kingdom. Whatever happens to the little kingdom that I've built here in my world, in my life, doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Basically it amounts to a hill of beans. That's your kingdom in this world. A hill of beans. But the Father's giving you a kingdom. When I was studying this and thinking through and I, and I read Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this realm. And again, he's standing with utmost confidence. At this point, his face bloodied, battered, bruised, beaten. My kingdom is not of this realm. How can he have such poise? How can he be so calm? It's because he knows where the kingdom is. I read that and the first thought that came to mind, and I'm not saying it was the Lord, but I think it was. The first thought that came to mind is we as Christians in this age need to have that mentality. We need to understand so well that our kingdom is not of this world that regardless of what happens in our lives, we consider it no threat. And I'm not trying to freak anybody out. In a few few weeks back, I know we were talking about martyrdom and we were talking about this whole issue of taking a stand for Jesus and how we're living as witnesses in a world that, that more and more wants to silence the message and take you down. And I don't know what's going to happen before Jesus comes again. I don't. I don't know how long we have. I hope not long. But I don't know, and I don't know how dark it's going to get before Jesus takes us home. So brothers and sisters, please know, little flock, your Father is gladly giving you a kingdom. And place your hope in that kingdom. Because when your hope is in that kingdom, you have the same mentality of Jesus that just says, my kingdom's not of this realm. In other words, you can take your best shot. You cannot shut down what the Father is doing. You can get all after me. You can take away my job. You can find me hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can put me in jail. You can take my life. You cannot change the fact that my Father is giving me a kingdom. And I am part of that. And I am going there. What an encouraging thought. And so Jesus makes this declaration in verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say, and the translators add the word correctly, he actually says, You say that I am king, implying, You said it. (laughs) That's kind of how we would respond. So you're a king? You said it. And Jesus says, For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? Pilate was an ancient postmodernist. What is truth? That's the reason right here 
why postmodernism rejects Jesus. Listen. You will not hear His voice if you refuse to be of the truth. Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth hears My voice. Reject the truth and you will not hear His voice. And at the very core of the postmodern mentality is a rejection of any kind of absolute truth. Reject that, you will not hear the voice of Jesus. Postmodernism can't get there because it rejects truth as a knowable absolute. But John says in 1 John 3, and note this, you might want to jot this verse down, go back and chew on this later. John writes, we will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us for, listen, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Our culture would say to you, your heart is greater than God. Because in this culture, the heart is the final word. The heart is the absolute ruler. What I think, what I feel, where I am at, that's what matters. But the Bible says the exact opposite. God is greater than your heart. Which in essence is saying, it doesn't matter how you feel about any given subject. It really doesn't matter what I think, what my opinion is. It doesn't matter. What matters is what is the truth. What does God say about it? What does His Word declare in the junior high kerfuffle that was taking place on Wednesday night? That was the issue, and I'm so blessed that we have a youth pastor like Jake, because that's the issue he kept bringing it back to. I know you feel this way, but the Bible says this. I know you think that, but the Bible says this. And children, teenagers, as you grow up, mom and dad will say one thing or another. Hopefully, they're telling you the truth. How do you know? You weigh it against the book. You weigh it against the Word of God. You come to the truth because this is the truth that will last. Not what mom says, not what dad says, not what brothers say, not what friends say, not what college professors say or high school teachers say. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. What does Jesus say about the matter? That's the truth. And God is greater than my heart. Which, by the way, also means as a believer in Christ, I may feel very strongly about something, but if I'm wrong, it doesn't make it right. I may have an absolute assurance and then come across something in Scripture and realize, I was way off. God is greater than my heart because He knows all things. What is truth? Pilate wonders. And that's his problem. Truth is not a what. Truth is a who. As Jesus said, I am the truth. 1 John 5.20 We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the true God and eternal life. What is truth? And not being able to come to grips with it, what does Pilate do? He has Jesus scourged and beaten. Which is what people do when they come face to face with the truth and they don't want to accept it. They will beat it. They will do whatever it takes to push it away, to get it out of their face. But you cannot humiliate away the truth. Verse 7 of chapter 19. Skip down there. More happens. We'll be going over this on Wednesday night. Verse 7. The Jews answered Pilate and they said, We have a law. By that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. You know, their law also said that God was coming. Their law declared that he would show up. Verse 8, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid and he entered into the praetorium again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. This is now the fifth time where we see Jesus standing up and owning the situation. Don't you know I have authority to kill you? You have no authority. The only authority you have is what's been given to you. 
to do exactly, by the way, as Jesus desired to have done. He is in complete control once again. I'm going to explain verse 11 on Wednesday night. But again, who has the authority? He is bound and determined to go to the cross. And go He does. And on the cross, in John's account, He is still in charge. He still has all authority. Note this, there are two more examples of authority of Jesus here. One is tender, one is triumphant. Down in verse 26 of chapter 9. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his household. Who's taking care of mom here? Jesus is. It's not Brother James. It's not Jude. It's not one of the other families saying, come on, Mary, let's, let's, we'll, we'll take care of you. We'll, no. Jesus has the presence of mind on the cross to authoritatively, as firstborn son, take care of mom before he goes. And I mention this, it may not seem to be the level of authority of all the other examples that John has given so far, but it mattered to John because he had to take Mary into his house for the rest of his life. No, it mattered to John because even in this most simple and tender and loving act, Jesus has all authority. Jesus is the one in charge and he hasn't forgotten himself as he sees his mother there and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, and he says, Mom, you're going to stay with John now. John, I want you to take care of Mom. And from that moment on, John does it. Finally, the seventh example. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his Spirit. Tetelestai is the Greek word. It is finished. Tetelestai. It's a word that means absolute finality. Tetelestai, Jesus says. And note this, even at the very end, John records, it was Jesus who determined the moment of his death. It was Jesus who gave up his spirit to die. It was Jesus who said, it is finished. And gave up his spirit in death. Absolute authority. Why did he do it? Why did Jesus, who had all authority, come to this world after having laid it down, only to receive it up again later? All the debates and arguments over personal views... All the choosing up sides. And we in the church do it as well. I mean, we have a side, right? Don't we? I mean, we're, we're, we're Christians. We're on that side of the argument. So we've sided up over here. And all of that, the perspectives and the paradigms and the, the postmodernism versus the modernist and, you know, the baby boomer versus the Gen Xer versus the millennial versus the Y generation versus whoever. And all of this thinking and debating and trying to say, you know, some say we should coexist and others say, no, we shouldn't. And, and by the way, here's something that's interesting to me. There are those who would say, and this was said actually just this past week, that ISIS should be able to do what they want to do. Good. I mean, if you're a true postmodernist, it's just what they, they're just doing what they feel is right. And they are. And what's interesting to me is if you take that example and then take the example of someone who practices homosexuality, they're just doing what they feel. Okay, put them together. What happens? ISIS throws the homosexuals off of the roofs of buildings to kill them. It is horrific, it is brutal. You can't put these opposing, you cannot coexist. It doesn't work. You have these two views. You put them in the same place, someone's going to lose. And we come at all of this with that kind of mentality. And and here's the problem, and and I'm trying to explain what I'm thinking here. 
It is not what we think when we, our question of authority and what authority looks like and the whole reason for being under authority, it's not what we think. It's not who's right and and who's wrong and who's tolerant and who's bigoted and who's going to win and who's going to lose. That's not the issue. Well, so what's the issue of authority? Ephesians 6.12 Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, and my opinions, whatever they may be, (laughs) does not change that. I may not like what the Bible teaches on a certain subject. doesn't change the fact that there are rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that are vying for my soul. 2 Corinthians 4.3 Paul says if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so for those who say, hey, everybody's got their own truth and we got to be okay with that. Listen, if this word, if this word be true, there is no room for any other. There simply is not. You cannot place the Bible side by side with the Quran, side by side with the Book of Mormon, side by side with the, the writings of the Baha'u'llah. You can't do it. It doesn't work. It's either God's word or no word. Because God has made such an absolutely authoritative way into eternity, one way only, and that is through Jesus, which is why He must have all authority. If you don't give Jesus all authority in your life, then you've given up your only hope for eternity. That's it. We can debate all we want. We can talk all day long about your opinion of this, my opinion of that, and it doesn't matter. Because the spiritual forces are still duking it out. Because angels and demons are still going at it. Because there is a spiritual reality that is so much bigger than this world. And that's what this postmodern world doesn't understand. There is a huge reality taking place all around us, and we can either be blind to it, and hole up in our own little microcosms. Or we can be open to the truth of the authority of Jesus. Colossians 2.13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. When my dad steered that car, when the wheel came off, and my dad steered that car, digging a groove right up the middle of the fast lane of I-5, it was impressive. My father, in Jesus Christ, dug a groove so deep and so straight, it leads all the way home. And that's what this is about. And that's why when you Christians talk to non-Christians about the gospel, you are not trying to convince them of an opinion. You're trying to show them the straight groove that leads straight home. And his name is Jesus. And he is the issue. And that's the reason why this matters so much. Why we should be so radically passionate about this. Because it's not about who wins the argument. It's about eternal life. And the Bible tells me in 1 John 5.20, He is true God and eternal life. Who has the authority? Your answer to that question will determine your eternal life. Who has the authority? Father, we stop this morning. Having recognized in these seven different moments, from the moment Jesus stepped forth, went forth to the Romans, and was bound all the way till He breathed His last, Your servant John has shown us this remarkable control. 
remarkable power, remarkable confidence, the authority of Jesus. And Father, I am under that authority. And I I clearly state, if there's anything I've said this morning that was stupid or off base or, or from without Your Word, Lord, bring those words to a halt and cause them not to be heard. May we only hear this morning of the authority of Jesus. And I pray, Father, for every Christian in the room this morning that we will have confidence to stand because of who Jesus is. Because of the authority that He wields in this world, in heaven, and in all eternity. And I pray, Father, if there are any non-believers here this morning, anyone who would not consider themselves to be a follower of Jesus, that perhaps today would be the day. Holy Spirit, You know our hearts. Would you move in us to respond to your authority as you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up together. Rachel. The question is, who is in authority? Who's in charge? There are different ways, I believe, that we can answer that question depending on where we're at in our lives. One authority, the authority remains the same, but how that applies to you, how that applies to me may be different. You may never have been baptized. And when I say baptized, I mean in the way that Jesus described it, in the way that Jesus did it, in the way that the word means. You may never have been immersed. Whose authority are you under? Not mine. Please hear me. I don't want anybody ever to get baptized because Rick talked him into it. That's the wrong reason. Whose authority are you under? If you've never given your life to Jesus, are you the authority in your own life? Are you the one in charge? The wheels are going to come off, man. And so I encourage you, invite you to place yourself under the authority of Jesus by claiming Him as Lord and Savior this morning. Maybe there are aspects of God's Word that you have rejected. You've accepted these over here, but but this you're just not comfortable with. I ask the question again. Who's got the authority in your life? If it's Jesus, and you recognize that, and you have been living out from under His authority, I invite you to come and repent. And accept once again the authority that is only His. Prayer team, come forward. Let's sing this song together. Consider the authority of Jesus and what that means to you this morning as we sing.